So it's the time to introduce our speaker. So our speaker name is Brian Cooper. Brian is a professor of theology, and I had the privilege to be one of his students for four years. I'm humbled to stand here and see him at ERBF, sharing the word of God with us. Brian helped me to, and many believers, do theology well and value God's kingdom work among different cultures. I would appreciate if you pray for us as we are hearing. Yeah. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy that we can experience as your children, the hope that you give us in Christ, and for the calling that we've received to be agents of your reconciling work in the world. Lord, make us a people that is exemplary even when we're not talking about you in the way that we live our lives. But when we open our mouths, may people hear what you would have us say to bless, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. May it pervade us individually and collectively so that we may be the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, as you have us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks for having me back. You know, when you're a seminary guy and you get invited to preach once, that's one thing. But when you get invited to preach twice, that's exciting. If you have a Bible, you might want to open it up to Galatians chapter 3. If you have it on your phone or whatever form you have it, um, that's cool. I have the old school, you know, paper white version. Battery life is amazing. You can follow along there just to make sure that I'm not making stuff up. We're continuing on uh, in the theme of the book of Galatians, and we're talking about why then the law, starting at Galatians 3, but 19, and going through to chapter 4, verse 7. And we're, I'm just going to preach and talk along, and we'll refer back and forth. And by the way, thank, uh, thank you on behalf of MB Seminary for your support, and my boss, Mark Westner, whom I love, despite the things that I say about him in the office. We, I have to admit, just, just true confessions, we have a lot of fun, we have a lot of joy as, as office, uh, in our office environment at the seminary. If you never, if you had the images of seminary being kind of a, a staid and stolid and somber kind of place, come visit us at the office, we'll make you a cup of coffee. And I mean, you, we have, I work with some amazing people, we do great stuff. I'm, I'm excited to go to work when I go to work every day, so just be encouraged. And I'm, I'm thrilled, thrilled beyond measure that you have Yosef serving here. I remember Yosef coming to me as a student when he started. And, and the, even the change over the four years that he was serving and the gifts that I saw in him, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he has the opportunity to put those gifts to work for the service of the kingdom. Um, I want to talk about when I was a little a, a boy, just a, a briefly. Now, I loved my mom. 
It's Mother's Day. I can't do, I'm going to talk about my dad. I loved my mom, and my mom and I had a special relationship. Actually, I got to see her a week ago. It was her birthday. One week ago today, she turned 85, and Connie and I went to Winnipeg to visit her. Um, but when I was a boy, I also used to spend a lot of time with my dad. And we would spend time working on old cars. My dad was a car guy. But he was also, it was also, uh, the reality was he was a pastor and he didn't have a lot of money to have somebody work on his cars, so he ended up doing a lot of work himself because he couldn't afford to take him to a shop. One of the things that was fun about my growing up time with my dad working on old cars was that my dad was into Studebakers. Now, some of you will remember Studebakers. Some of you are going, what's a Studebaker? A Studebaker was an old kind of car. And there's one in the picture there. That's not us. That's just one that I found. But that's very similar to one that we had. And uh, they stopped making them in the 60s. So when I was a kid in the 70s, there were still enough of them around that people wanted to celebrate them for reasons that are kind of mysterious, but nevertheless. Anyway, my dad was a collector of Studebakers, but not the nice kind of Studebakers that you see at, at antique car shows. My dad had the kind that spent a lot of time rusting gently in the backyard, you know, that kind. And working on those cars was not a lot of fun. But one thing that was a lot of fun was that my dad was a part of the Studebaker Drivers Club. Of course he was. And that's because we got to see other cars that were in better condition than ours, and there were also kind of meets and activities. My favorite activities were the car rallies. And for me, that was about as good as it got. When we had car rallies, we, each team would receive a set of instructions that was a cross between kind of navigational directions and children's riddles. You know, there were no street names or cardinal directions like north, south. There were only instructions like, drive until you see the building where Big Macs are served, then turn right. Or, Follow the road with the same name as the middle trim level for 1964 Studebaker Larks. Okay, remember that these were hardcore Studebaker nerds, okay? So that made sense in context. Now, the, the instructions were generally easy to follow if you were paying attention and if you were a Studebaker nerd. But if you made a wrong turn, uh-oh, you were lost. Because there were no reference points other than the instructions to help you get back on the right path you would have to go back to a point where you knew where you were and try again, okay? Along the way, there were a couple of important elements that made a car rally work. The first and most obvious one was that the participants had to trust the directions. They had to trust that following them would get where they needed to go. The participants couldn't deconstruct the directions and try to skip to the destination because they didn't know what it was. Now, working hand-in-hand hand with trust was the accountability that was built into the car rally in the form of the questions to be answered. These questions could only be answered by gaining information from along the rally route, right? For example, participants might be asked, how many light posts are in the parking lot of the grocery store that they passed on their right? Or they might be asked what the price of pork chops is at the butcher shop they saw right after they turned left at a certain landmark, that kind of thing. People who could answer those questions were the people who had taken the intended route. 
Now, of course, the most challenging part of the car rallies was that you didn't find out in advance where you were going. All you had was this set of instructions, this process to guide you. Occasionally, a team would set out and get so lost that they would give up and go home. The ones that did, the ones who did make it, didn't cross a finish line and receive congratulations. They had to go to the actual destination, often a restaurant or someplace with a meeting room, and join the other participants for a time of swapping stories and awarding the prizes. Now, car rallies were fun, but not because we enjoyed driving around half blind. They were fun because of the entertainment value in the rallies themselves, but they were also the way to get to the destination, both the physical destination and the social destination. The social destination was the real prize, the real goal for each person. The rally part, driving around Winnipeg, was the means to an end, not an end in itself. Now, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatian Christians was intended to help them understand the connection between the grace of God revealed in the law and the grace of God revealed in Christ. There are parallels between what Paul says in his letter and the old car rallies that we used to do. More on that in a moment. Now, the problem, as you'll know well by now, was that the Galatians were having trouble separating out the ritual observances that were connected to their Jewish religion from their freedom they received in Christ. Some of the Jewish believers continued to believe and observe, or observe rather, the, the law or the Torah as they did before. This would have been fine because there was actually nothing wrong with that. The problem was that they identified this ritual observance as the thing by which God forgave their sins and granted them access to the covenant. Of course, Paul goes to great lengths to dispel this myth, culminating in his powerful statement in Galatians 3.11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. And here, Paul is actually quoting Habakkuk 2.4. And this is corroborated by a number of other Old Testament texts. For example, Hosea 6.6, where God says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I think that the law was like a warning light. Or, oh, sorry, wrong page. That brings us to the pressing question for today. There we go. Why did God give the law in his covenant with his people? If the law doesn't provide salvation, what's it for? I'm glad you asked. It's absolutely untrue that there is one way to peace with God in the Old Testament, observing the law, and a different one in the New Testament, faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what do I mean by that? Let's take a closer look. In verse 19... Paul starts by saying that the law was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Well, what's that about? Well, this statement means that the law provided a clear standard against which God's people could measure themselves, their words and their actions, to know whether or not they met God's standard of righteousness. The law did this by prescribing what God's children were to do and what they were not to do. Now, it, it, if this seems harsh, 
Think of parenting small children. You have to tell small children a lot of things because otherwise they don't know what acceptable behavior is and what it isn't. You, like, you, you know how to draw with crayons? You like to draw with crayons? Great! You like to draw with crayons on the wall? Not so great. See, instructions are necessary. And parents who take care to explain things show their care for their children, as God did. Now, where would the Israelites have been without the law? Well, nowhere. They would just have been hopelessly lost. They would have had no way to discern just how lost they were, nor any way to become unlost. The law worked not primarily by revealing what holiness looked like directly, but rather by clearly showing what it didn't look like. The law identified sin so that God's people would recognize this and turn their hearts in the opposite direction, away from sin. I think the law was like a warning light or an alarm. Have you ever been driving your car when a warning light, maybe the check engine light, came on, right? You know that you have a problem and that if you ignore it, things are going to get worse. You need to stop and give attention to your car so that you don't risk doing permanent damage. That's how the law worked. You knew you had crossed the line. You knew it because you, had, you spent time reading and thinking about the law, the Torah, and like a check engine light, it reminded you of when you had gone askew somehow. In large part, the law was a gift that reminded people that they needed God's grace. But did it provide that grace? Well, thinking of the law as a warning light is of limited help. It evokes images of God as waiting around for people to sin so that he can shout, wrong, you know, you did it wrong. Unless we, unless we remember that in the law, God also provide a way of restoration, okay? There was a way people could come back when they had gone astray. So the law not only illustrated the boundaries, it showed people how they could come back to the center, this is what Paul is talking about in verse 24 when he refers to the law as a guardian. The, the word here refers to a, a tutor, an instructor, a mentor, a supervisor. Somebody who takes care of and oversees someone who is not old enough to take care of himself or herself. This person is a trainer who instills godly disciplines in the student. Remember that in the Torah, there were various kinds of sacrificial offerings that the Israelites were instructed to give. For example, for thanksgiving, or for sins committed, and, and others. There were processes associated with each kind, and in case you think this, this is pedantic, know that in Leviticus in 4, 5, chapter 6, something there, there are a number of processes outlining sacrifices that were for sins that were committed unintentionally. Can you imagine that? You, you, you sin unintentionally, and then you, later you realize, or maybe somebody points it out to you, there's, there's a process for that. God, in his grace, provide even, provided even for those sins. Why? Because God wanted an intimate relationship with his people and wanted to address the impediments. You might be asking, but why so many sacrifices? Did God really like barbecue? 
Like, was there something special or magical about the blood of bulls and goats? No. But think of it this way. The sacrifices made sense in the context of that time and culture. They were precious commodities for people. They were food, they were money, and status all rolled into one. They reminded people that sin had a cost. And they provided a contextually understandable way to frame atonement for sin and offer gratitude to God. The offerings were a means to an end, not ends in themselves. Remember that movie, The Karate Kid? Like the original one, not the remake, okay? You know, with Pat Morita playing Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi didn't have Daniel do those exercises just so that he would be good at waxing cars and painting fences. They were exercises that made sense in context and they led to a greater goal in a way that Daniel did not initially appreciate. But one, Daniel knew what the goal was and two, he trusted the process as Mr. Miyagi, his guardian, laid it out. So the law did mediate God's grace to the people because they could be reconciled to, the, to God in the context of the covenant. But in the, in the process, in the Karate Kid, like the law for the Israelites, um, or sorry, the process was not intended to be a permanent arrangement. The coming of Christ was going to change some things. And the principal change can we, can, we can see in verses 23 to 25, that in Christ, the justification that comes by faith is revealed. Now, as Paul reminds the Galatians, the need for law as a guardian has passed. The law was a reminder that this promise was still coming and that God's faithfulness in keeping his side of the covenant reassured the Israelites that they weren't keeping the law for nothing. There were a lot of years and generations that passed between the time of the promise and its fulfillment. So it's not inconceivable that the Israelites wondered how long they were going to have to wait. But the flip side of being reminded that the law was not the ultimate manifestation of God's covenant was the reminder not to make the law an idol, the focus of religious devotion. The law, rather, provided a frame that helped believers in the God of the covenant understand what faith should look like. What this meant was that Jews would have a way to God because God had chosen them and given them the covenant. God's plan was to make the Jews, the nation of Israel, the bearers of God's message of reconciliation to the rest of the nations. And if you look in the Bible, you can see evidence that there were people from other nations who became converts to the covenant by effectively becoming Jews. Acts 13.43 mentions the response in the synagogue to Paul and Barnabas by Jews and converts to Judaism, proselytes. Their response was the same because in the Old Testament context, Gentiles became followers of the God of the covenant by doing what Jews themselves had been called to do, observe the law. 
Exodus 12:48 outlines what needed to happen in order for a foreigner living among the Israelites to celebrate the Passover. He and all the males in his household needed to be circumcised. In a nutshell, the law provided an arrangement by which the Israelites and any other people who desired to follow God could enter into and live in the covenant. The thing, that was, the thing was that everyone needed to become like a Jew. That was the shape of faith in the Old Testament. Now, it might not be entirely surprising that some Jewish Christians made the unfortunate mistake of assuming that in order to be a follower of Jesus the Messiah... All people had to continue to become like Jews. That was the way it had been. And even though the apostles went to great lengths to proclaim the good news of salvation by faith in Christ, <clears throat> some didn't understand or were resistant to the message. It may have been also that these Jewish Christians, Paul calls them the circumcision group back in Galatians 2.12, also, they lost sight of the fact that it was never the law that saved them. Again, the law simply provided the framework in which they were able to live out their faith in the God of the covenant. If they had faith in God, they were to demonstrate this faith by obeying the commands of God seen in the Torah, the law. But... For many of the Jews, they lost sight of the role the law was supposed to play and made observing the law the thing all in itself. And they also made salvation about themselves rather than fulfilling the calling they had been given by God to be light to the nations. Isaiah 49 verse 6 talks about this calling. Isaiah wrote, and Isaiah was, um, yeah, sorry, Isaiah wrote, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. In the Old Testament, the law was God's evangelistic tool. The plan was for people to have faith in God using the mediation of the law as context. Then, when Christ would come, they would put their faith directly in Christ, God's Son. The best part was that in Christ, the entry portal into relationship with God would be thrown open. No longer would people need to observe circumcision and follow the Torah. <clears throat> Excuse me. No longer would people need to become Jews in order to follow God. In fact, all of the barriers that had existed before were broken down. The law had distinctions not only for Jews and Gentiles, but also for male and female, slaves and free people. But now, all of those were gone. In Christ, the playing field was leveled, and everyone approached on the same basis through faith in Christ. Everyone belonging to Christ would henceforth be Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Verse 29. In Christ, we are all children of Abraham. Paul starts chapter 4 with language that refers to the law as a kind of trust fund that was meant to provide for his people until they were able to come out from under its guardianship. 
A day was coming when, rather than dealing through leaders like Moses and the external direction of the law, God was going to deal with his people in a different way. Rather than needing the law to help them understand what was right and wrong, God was going to enable people to know more directly what God required. Here's what the prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Ezekiel 11:19 records a prophecy that I believe is fully accomplished in the context of the new covenant, but anticipated in the law, in which God would put a new spirit in his people and would remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Now, believers need no human intercessor, no priest or leader or pastor to intercede before God for us because Jesus, the great high priest, has done it. We don't need the law because God's law is written in our, on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and when we talk in the way that is faithfulness, we are following the example of Jesus who not only taught us but showed us the way. We are heirs of the promise who receive blessings that are greater than we can ask or imagine. Now that we are no longer under the law, we have full access to the riches that the law held as a trust. The law was given by God and was good. It passed away only because it served its purpose. The freedom we have in Christ is not the opposite of the law. Don't let anyone fool you. The freedom we have comes because the Spirit in us enables us to live a righteousness far greater than the law could enable. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20. He says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. If our lives don't exemplify the righteousness that Jesus is talking about here, the righteousness that is evidence of the Spirit's transformative work, then we are not living in light of what the law pointed to as promise. The transformed life that Jesus described, that Paul talked about when he talked about being justified by faith, comes through the power of the Spirit. We don't earn it. We surrender to it. This brings me back to the matter of the car rally. When we were participating in the car rally, there was only one way to arrive at the goal, to follow the instructions. To ignore them meant that we would be lost. To try to shortcut them 
would mean disqualification. Getting to the goal successfully meant careful attention to the process so that we could celebrate together at the destination. But here's the thing. There are better ways to navigate than that. If the law was like a set of car rally instructions that required diligent attention but provided less information about where people were going, then the new covenant in Christ, mediated by the Spirit, is more like a GPS that provides us with not only awareness of where we are going, but how to get to the destination and where we're coming from. The voice of the Spirit is like that voice that talks. It doesn't nag, it just talks through the GPS. We need not puzzle over the guidance the Spirit provides. Rather, the task is to follow the direction of the Spirit. And the best part is that by the Spirit, we have a sense of direction that helps us navigate effectively. But as we look back, by the wisdom that comes from the Spirit, we recognize the kinship that exists between us and our forebears who navigated the old way. We acknowledge them as spiritual ancestors, even as we rejoice that we now live under a far better covenant. Through the Spirit's wisdom, we can gently point the way to those around us who labor under the impression that God's favor is gained through the quality of works performed, as though God demanded that people earn their way into relationship. We can recognize that God's favor is not earned, at least in part because we see that it never was. By the Spirit's wisdom, we can see God is gracious. God makes a way for us to know him and to be known, to love because of his love for us, to be a light to show the way for others and to show what it means to follow in that way. We live in a world that is looking for hope. Reflecting on the law reminds us that God gives us reason to hope, and that's good news. And who doesn't need good news? Amen. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Um, May God help us to understand the connection between the grace of God revealed in the law and the grace of God revealed in Christ. This is the covenant I will make with the, God, the people of God. It is good to be reminded of God's word. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their weaknesses and will remember their sins no more. As Brian mentioned to us, the freedom we have comes because the Spirit in us enabled us to live a righteousness far greater than the law could enable. May we live out our faith before God and others and share the good news with people who God loves. As really we're in direction, we forgot things, and in this road we have grace and love, So I hope we all go, as we are going, uh, we remember God's love and his word and his direction. Yeah. God bless you.